Well, if you would, take out your Bibles and let's open up to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 17. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 17. And as you're turning there, uh, let me say a special word of greeting to our visitors. Uh, we're very happy that you're here. You're welcome here anytime. Uh, we love to have guests among us, and we hope you'll sense our love for one another uh, in this church family, uh, but even more than that, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We have two main studies happening right now here at Mount Hermon. Uh, we have our study of the book of Romans, uh, which we'll be coming back to in a couple of weeks and finishing up Romans 14. Uh, and then we have our study of the gospel of Luke. And currently we're still in Luke chapter 2, uh, where Mary and Joseph have just entered the outermost courts of the temple with the infant Jesus. Jesus is 40 days old, and they've come to Jerusalem to perform the required sacrifices. And they're getting ready to meet two very dear saints, Simeon and Anna. But this morning, as we prepare for the Lord's table, we're going to fast forward a bit and skip ahead in the Gospel of Luke uh, because I want to preach on a theme that God has been bringing back to my heart and my mind uh, quite a bit lately. And it is the theme of thankfulness, uh, the theme of gratitude. Uh, when we look at Paul's letters, for example, especially a letter like Colossians, uh, we can't help but notice that thankfulness is to be one of the dominant themes of a Christian's life. That we as believers are to be marked by gratitude. And this makes sense because we are a saved people. Our identity is wrapped up in the fact that we don't deserve it. But Jesus has ransomed us. He has rescued us. He has delivered us. We are saved. And like a child pulled from the flames of a house on fire, carried out of that burning building by a fireman, so we too have been rescued. And for the rest of our lives and into eternity, there should be this eternal mark of gratitude. Now, as we remember again through the bread and the cup, what the Lord Jesus has done for us, we want to come to the table with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We have so much to be grateful for. A partial list might include the fact that we woke up this morning, that there was a roof over our heads. We were not robbed or attacked while we slept. We had cozy beds to sleep in. When we awoke, we had working bathrooms and showers that we could use. Anybody have to go out to the outhouse this morning? We have clothes to wear, toothbrushes and toothpaste, kitchens with refrigerators keeping our milk cold, Pantries with food for us to eat, automobiles and gasoline. Nobody had to walk here this morning. We have families, friends, 
Many of us have jobs. We have laws that protect us and preserve our freedoms. We have policemen and emergency personnel on call to serve us. We're free people in this country. We're not slaves here. We're a wealthy people. Even the poorest person in this room is rich according to the standards of the world. Where billions still live on less than $2 a day. We have the world around us. We have the sun over our heads. We have the reservoir and trees and mountains and oceans. And we haven't even gotten to the realities that are especially true for us as Christians. That for us, our sins have been forgiven. That our hearts have been changed. That we once were blind, but now we see we've been adopted by God and call him Abba, Father. We've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is ahead for us. The promises of the Bible are ours. God hears our prayers. We get to bring worship to him. There's the reality that he has given us everything we need for our hearts to know true joy and true peace. That his grace is sufficient for our every trial. And that even those trials are ultimately a gift of love from his hand. That he is working for our good. And one day we're going to stand before our Savior. Washed clean by his blood. And we are going to be ushered into the presence of God. To live in the joy of communing with God forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you feel that God has already overwhelmed you with his blessings, he will have only just begun. It is an evidence of how badly sin has twisted us up that we can live in the midst of those blessings and not be thankful. And one chief evidence that God is fixing us One chief evidence that God is making us who we ought to be is the rise of continuous gratitude in our lives. And so I want us to look at this passage this morning with three simple questions. Why should we be thankful to God? How can we grow in thankfulness to God? And how should we show our thankfulness to God? We'll spend most of our time on the first question and then just briefly touch the other two. Look with me at Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. This is the word of God. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. 
Your faith has made you well. So question number one, why should we be thankful to God? Answer, because he has been merciful to us. He has been merciful to us. In verse 11, we learn that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but he's not going directly there. He's taking some detours to preach, to do ministry. And at this particular point, he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee, but he's gradually moving south towards Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he's going to ride into town on a donkey, and he's going to be arrested, and he's going to be tortured, and he's going to be crucified on a cross. So that's, that's where he's going. But in verses 12 and 13, we're told that Jesus is here entering a village. We don't know which one. We're told that as he entered this village, there were ten lepers crying out to him from a distance. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And of course, there's a reason that the lepers were standing at a distance. Uh, Growing up, when I heard pastors preach on leprosy, they often spoke of leprosy in terms of what's now called Hansen's disease. This is a disease in which bacteria progressively infects the skin and the nerves so that lesions begin to appear on the skin, ultimately leading to the body's extremities, such as arms and legs, not having the vital life-giving energy that it needs. The limbs begin to shrivel and the limbs begin to fall off. If you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, Uh, The the classic Ben-Hur. This is the kind of leprosy that is presented in that movie. Uh, Over the past many years, there has been a criticism of that, saying that Hansen's disease actually didn't exist in Israel during the first century, and that the word used here, translated as leper, is actually a word that can refer to a variety of skin diseases. And that is true. A person with psoriasis could perhaps have been considered a leper with this term. A person with a case of of ringworm might have been considered a leper using this term. However, just a few years ago, some archaeologists in Israel opened up a tomb and did some work on the bones that were found there and concluded that these bones were indeed from people who had Hansen's disease in Israel in the first century. And so it seems that it's actually likely that that is the kind of thing that's being referred to here, especially because of the way that these men are being told to stay a ways off. Uh, How bad off these particular men were, we do not know. Uh, But we do know that Hansen's disease, as well as other skin diseases, did in fact exist in the days of Christ in Israel. Now here's what we know for sure. A person who appeared to be breaking out with some kind of disease of the skin was given in Old Testament law the instruction to go to a priest. And these priests were given detailed instructions in Leviticus 13 of what exactly to do and what to determine if this was in fact a leprous disease. If it was a leprous disease, then God commanded that the priest must pronounce that person 
unclean. And for as long as it lasted, that pronouncement was life-changing. If you showed the priest your issue with your skin, and he declared that's a leprous disease and declares you unclean, as long as that pronouncement was on you, your life radically altered. You could no longer live among your own family. You could no longer live among your own community. Uh, Back when Israel was traveling through the wilderness, lepers had to live outside the camp. Lepers had to live away from others who were not infected with the disease to keep the disease from spreading. What's more, when they were in public, they were required to keep at a distance from all other people. They had to wear torn clothes and to let the hair of their head hang loose so that they could be easily identified as leprous. They were to keep their upper lips covered, uh, perhaps meaning we think that they were to have a covering of some sort over their mouths. We see the wisdom and the kindness of God and that these people knew nothing about germs, bacteria, how diseases spread. But God gave them these instructions so that his people would be protected from mass breakouts of these kinds of diseases. But think of what this was like. Um, If you had been walking in a village and without thinking started to approach a leper... His or her responsibility was to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that you would know, back off. There were some types of skin diseases that would eventually go away. Some skin diseases would go away in a few days, some in a matter of weeks. When that happened, a person could go to a priest, be reinspected, and if the priest pronounced that person clean, he could be reunited with his family reunited with his community. He could worship again. He could return again to his old way of life. But for some, those whose skin diseases were chronic and lifelong, those who would have had anything like Hansen's disease, their whole lives were now lived under this curse. So imagine being torn away from your family, not being able to embrace your kids, not being ever allowed to kiss them again, Imagine the shame of having to yell out, unclean, unclean, anytime someone came a little too close to you. This is the kind of life that we think these men were apparently living. And you say, Justin, that's an interesting history lesson. What does that have to do with us? Well, friend, what do you think Isaiah meant when he said of all of us, We have all become like one who is unclean. And our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Isaiah 64, 6. Just as this leprosy separated these men from their families and their communities and their houses of worship, so we are taught that our sinfulness has made us unclean and cut us off from God, from His people, Inside the camp is the presence of God and the people of God. But we, because of our sinfulness, were, were excluded. We were, we were outside the camp. We were cut off by nature because of our sinfulness and eternally cut off. 
Outside the camp was the place of death. It's where the wild animals were. It's where the robbers and the murderers were. It's it's where the trash was burned. We, by our sinfulness, were cut off from God, outside of the blessings of God, outside of the peace of God, under the curse of God. And now, by faith, we can be saved. God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel to declare to his people Israel the reality that they were spiritual lepers, spiritually unclean, spiritually wicked, and cast away from his presence and his true people. But then listen to the promise that God gave through his prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. He said this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people. I will be your God. No longer will we be cut off. No longer will we be unclean. We will live with God's people in God's land. He will be our God. And this promise finds its fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Look look at how this cleansing is illustrated by the miracle in, in our text. Jesus tells these lepers in verse 14, Go and show yourselves to the priests. He hasn't healed them yet. They're they're still lepers. They've they've still got the skin disease. And yet Jesus says to them, go, show yourself to the priest. So now they each have a choice. Jesus is telling them, go be inspected by the priest with the implication that once they get there, the priest is going to find them no longer unclean. Their disease will be gone. So whether or not they trust Jesus... Whether or not they trust that he can and will heal them will be shown right now by this decision. Will they go? Will they turn towards the priest and start going that way? Will they do as Jesus said? True faith will be shown by true obedience. This is how it is. Whether or not we truly trust Christ and His Word will be shown in our lives by our obedience. And in this case, all ten go. And on their way, all ten are cleansed. And that is how it has been with so many of us in this room this morning. Jesus has come. He's taken the punishment that we deserved on the cross. He commands us to believe that he is both able and willing to save us. And the moment we believe, we find ourselves cleansed and our sins are forgiven. We're no longer cut off from God and his people. It's a free gift. And it's a free gift found by obeying this command of Jesus. Believe. 
do you believe? Do you believe that despite who you are and what you have done, Christ is able and willing to save you? If you doubt this, you cannot be saved. If you think that Christ is unable or if you think that Christ is unwilling, you cannot be a Christian. But the moment you take Jesus at his word and run to him, your sins are forgiven and you are made right with God and you are truly and forever saved. Friend, Jesus will take your broken down, diseased life and he will begin to teach you how to live well for your joy, the benefit of others, and his glory. Jesus will take all that is wrong with you. He will make it right. He will justify you now. He will sanctify you over time and make you the person you were created to be. The question is, is this what you desire? To be clean. Are you sick and tired of the garbage in your life? The sins you continue to entangle yourself with. The wicked choices you continue to make. The wicked attitudes you continue to entertain. The guilt that you have before God. Do you not wish to be rid of it all? Many of us in this room have received this mercy. We have God as our God. We, we have his people as our people. Heaven is ours. The promises of the Bible are ours. Peace is ours. The strength of the Spirit is ours. We have every reason to be thankful because Jesus has had mercy on us. Question number two. How can we grow in thankfulness to God? Well, before we start condemning these nine lepers who were healed and did not return to give thanks, consider their situation. It is very possible that these lepers had not hugged their children or kissed their spouses in years. It is very likely that these nine men left the priest who had just declared them clean and they ran home. Can you blame them? It's not an excuse. Jesus clearly looks upon their ingratitude as an expression of sin and selfishness. There's no reason to think that this tenth man didn't also have a family and people he loved for whom he had been separated a long time, but he chose to go to Christ first. We're told he approached Jesus praising God in a loud voice and then he fell on his face at Jesus' feet giving thanks. We see this man's humility. An ungrateful person is a person of great pride. The person of great pride takes the blessings of God for granted as if he deserves them. But a person who sees reality understands that there's nothing they have that has not been given to them by God's gracious, merciful hand. If humility is the sap running through the branch, gratitude will be a fruit. If you want to grow in thankfulness, grow in humility. The less highly you think of yourself, the more highly you'll think of God for saving you and loving you. And the more amazed you'll be that he put so many people around you who care for you. 
And the more stunned you'll be that he works even this situation and that situation for your good. The less you think of yourself, the more humble you will be, the more amazed you will be, the more grateful you will be for the mercy of God. Why was this man so overwhelmed and grateful for what Christ had done that he returned with praises on his lips while the nine others did not? Notice the last words of verse 16. Now he was a Samaritan. And you're supposed to gasp. (gasps) Luke saved this bit of information and only now reveals it because he wants it to be a surprise to us. Looking at what Jesus says in verse 17, it appears that the other nine lepers were all Jews. But this one was a Samaritan. A half-breed, half-Jew, half-Gentile, looked down upon by the Jews, misguided in their religious practices, an outcast among the children of Abraham. God told his people, do not intermarry outside of the nation. But some in their wickedness did so, and here are their offspring. The very existence of a Samaritan is shameful. At least that's how the Jews thought about it. Yet Jesus, a Jew, the Messiah of the Jews, the King of the Jews, he he did not merely heal his nine kinsmen. His mercy was great. His grace was abounding. He healed even the leprous Samaritan. And because this man knew doubly what it was to be despised and shamed, He was even more joyful. He was even more grateful at the amazing grace of Jesus. Do you want to grow in gratitude? Let us learn anew all the reasons we have to be ashamed before God. That is, before you count your blessings, count your sins. It's not as fun. It's not nearly as fun. But when you count your sins... And then you count your blessings. You really begin to grasp how magnificent the mercy of Christ really is. Do you know your own sinfulness? I feel it. Not as much as as I should, but I feel it. Shame is a constant companion, I think, for the true believer. Because every day we see our own selfishness. Every day we see our, our half-heartedness. Every day we see how, how our devotion wavers. But the more we're honest about this, the more we're honest about the sins in our own lives and our own hypocrisy and half-heartedness and, and all of that, the more we become amazed and in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, grateful for the fact that Jesus would die for me. Do you ever just stop and look at however many years you've been walking with Jesus and say, I thought I'd be so much better by now. I really thought I would be so much godlier by now. How am I still committing the same sins I was committing when I first came to Christ? And you feel that sense of shame. And then afresh you remember the gospel. 
that Jesus loves you just as much today as the day you first believed. That his commitment to you has not wavered one iota. That you are still his treasured possession. Does that not cause you, does that not cause you to overflow in gratitude? Does it mean you should be content in sin? Does it mean you make peace with where you are? Well, it's been this long. I guess I'll never. No, no, no. Romans 6, Romans 7, read it. Take it to heart. Obey it. Pursue righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Hunger for holiness. But in those moments, when you sense how far you have to go, be freshly amazed at the patient, tender love of Jesus. And finally, question number three, how do we express our thankfulness to God? Two observations from this passage. First, just note the sincerity, the genuineness of this man's gratitude. It is evident in his joy, right? This is a mark of real, genuine, sincere gratitude. It is a joyful gratitude. There is pleasure in real thanksgiving. Paul is often called the apostle of joy, and Paul was constantly giving thanks. Think about the child who gets the pair of socks from his Aunt Gertrude at Christmas. Junior, tell your Aunt Gertrude thank you for those socks. And the child, disappointed by the gift, just kind of mutters, thank you for the socks. It's not real gratitude, and you can tell because there's no joy in the child's voice. But when the child opens up a gift and it's something he truly desired, you don't have to tell the child to be grateful. Suddenly the the gratitude is just genuine. He, He gasps. As he opens the present, and suddenly it's, thank you, thank you, thank you. He he dances around. There's a big grin on his face. And here we're told that the leper praised God with a loud voice. It's actually the Greek word from which we get our word megaphone. Okay? He's shouting. He's rejoicing. There's happiness in his heart. He was unclean, and now he's clean. Friends, we should know our sin and weakness, and all the reasons we do not deserve mercy. But we should know even more than that, the glory of God and Christ and what He has done for us. We are to live in humble joyfulness. Happy people say thank you. Happy people love to show gratitude. Have you been made happy in the grace of Christ? Is it not true that ungrateful people also tend to be the most miserable people? Ungratitude and misery go hand in hand. But gratitude, thanksgiving, these are connected to joy. Let us flee pride. That high thoughts of ourselves that make us bitter whenever we're not treated like we think we ought to be treated. And so what do we do? We don't say thank you. We complain. The opposite of complaining is being thankful. The other observation in this passage about how to express gratitude uh, that I would point out is simply that it should be expressed through acts of praise and worship. Uh, what we're doing here this, mat- this morning is, is good. 
We see this man here offering up thankfulness to God with his lips, with his body. With his lips, he speaks God's praises. With his body, he, he goes to the ground before Jesus puts his face in the dust as a sign of worship. We should, sh- we should show gratitude to God by worshiping him and our obedience throughout every day. But let us not fail to regularly show our gratitude to God in set-apart moments of real praise and worship. Our worship services ought to be characterized by this. Yes, we come here to learn from God's Word, but we also come here to worship. We gather as a church to express our gratitude We come here as a church to to praise the name of the one who rescued us. And it's also why we come to the table. Oh yes, as we come to the table, it's the Lord Jesus giving us the sign of the covenant. It's the Lord Jesus giving us the pledge of his love. As we take the cup, as we take the bread from the hands of the deacons, it's as if we're receiving them from the hand of Christ himself. It's his guarantee. You've entrusted yourself to me. I will bring you safely to heaven, and we will dine together at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Here is my promise to you. That's happening at the table. But there should be something else happening at the table. Your response to that, which should be, Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for having mercy on a sinner like me. And because this isn't a private thing, it's a corporate thing. It should be, Father, thank you for having mercy on sinners like us. It's us together thanking and praising Jesus for his life and his death on our behalf. So as we come to the table... Let's approach with thankfulness. Amen? Amen.